all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. Call it rejuvenation because though your chronological change uh, age can't change, your biological age can. And when you change these biomarkers that we uh, measure, you're actually going back to a more youthful state. So if somebody was to look at you without knowing how old you are, they would predict you to be about 10 years younger, roughly. And I'm not kidding. This podcast is sponsored by the Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I'm your Lime acupuncturist, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 237 with the author of BioDiet, David G. Harper. Also, welcome our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and in this episode, you will learn three main things. Why changing your diet should be your first line of defense for getting Lime free. How long you have to stick to a keto diet for it to work. And simple tests to determine if a ketogenic diet is right for you. Thanks, Aurora, and a big shout out to all you longtime Lime Ninjas. You're the reason we have more than a half million downloads. Aurora and I really, really appreciate you tuning in. And we'd like to welcome all you new Lime Ninjas out there, you new listeners. New Lime Ninja li- listeners. Lime, li- lime Ninjas. <laughs> lime Ninjas. Lime listeners. <laughs> welcome, welcome. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. You can tell we have a lot of fun here. <laughs> And by listening, you are now officially a Lyme ninja. And as you know, Lyme disease is an international problem. And each week we have listeners join you from all over the world. This past week, we've had listeners tune in from Chincoteague to Chicago and Paris to Toronto. That's Paris, France. That is Paris, France. Not Paris, New York. No. (laughs) Which is about two miles from here. (laughs) Yep. Okay, Roy, tell us a little bit more about today's guest, David G. Harper. David G. Harper is an educator, researcher, and health consultant and has studied the effect of diet on health issues for many years. Dr. Harper has a PhD from the University of British Columbia, is on the Scientific Advisory Board of the Canadian Clinicians for Therapeutic Nutrition, and is a member of the Institute for Personalized Therapeutic Nutrition. Okay, McKay, why did you want to talk to David Harper? Mainly because diet may be the most important intervention there is with Lyme disease. It helped with you. It helps with everybody. (laughs) 
and we all hate to do it. But we have to do it anyway. So giving up sugar is the obvious thing to do. But becoming full-blown ketogenic is a whole nother world of help. And really, we talk about that there are three phases for healing from Lyme disease, and phase one is reboot. The second phase is to resolve, and the third phase is to restore. And we've got all this up on our website. Just go to LimeNinjaRadio.com, click on the extras button, and you'll see where you can download the roadmap that we put together to show you these three phases. And the beginning of phase two is to prepare for your treatment. And the best way to prepare for a treatment is to reduce inflammation in the body. And there's nothing better than a ketogenic diet. They're really, if you find anything, let us know and we'll interview that person too. But a ketogenic diet right now is huge and it helps restore your immune system. So you have to get your food right. You have to get your body, your metabolism right to support you in healing. Otherwise, you're just going to be spinning your wheels. So that's why I wanted to bring David and talk to him about his book, The Bio Diet. Make sense? That does make sense. All right. So let's... Without further ado. (laughs) And do we got another cliche on top of that? Um, Let's get the ball rolling. (laughs) (laughs) One more. Uh, let's get the show on the road. <laughs> Here's the interview <laughs> with David Harper. Hello, David G. Harper, PhD. This is McKay Rippey from Lime Ninja Radio. Hi, McKay. It's a pleasure to be here today from uh, sunny Vancouver in uh, British Columbia, Canada. And you're in New York State, are you? I'm in central New York, and I have to ask, is it actually sunny up there? It, it's sunny every day here. Don't believe the press. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, we, we, we've been getting a beautiful weather for the past couple of months, and it is a, a beautiful, sunny, uh, almost summer day. Another two days to go before we hit the uh, summer equinox, I guess, right? The, the official date, yeah, because down yeah. here, we're actually just about the cloudiest uh, part of the U.S., even worse than uh, Seattle. No, really. No. Yes. Well, I've been I've been to upstate New York and and uh, you know Utica, Attica, Rochester. It's beautiful, beautiful That's, countryside up there. It is. It's green like Ireland because it rains every day. <laughs> uh, we got a lot of green too. We get a, We get a rain sort of all at once, and it starts in about November and ends in about March. <laughs> oh my goodness! So I'm very curious. I'm always happy to speak with people who are very interested in food and diet and how it impacts health. And of course, we're doing that in the context of people with chronic infections, particularly Lyme disease, but often other infections come along with that as well. And your background is as a professor, so in the teaching profession and in kinesiology. Now, what inspired you to teach as a profession and then move over into kind of more on the physiology side than the kinesiology side? Yeah, well, it, it sort of came the other way around. I, I started as a, as a biologist ah. um, and my actual PhD was in mathematical biofluid dynamics, um, which which uh, yes. took me to uh, yeah, Woods Hole, Cape Cod, and then I was off at Cambridge University in the UK. And, and when I came back to Canada... Um, I I, uh, the, I I decided that I wanted to. I really just love teaching and, and I love learning. That's probably what, and you know that's I, I got to say, 
Your show is so good. There's so many really uh, top people on there. You've been on a long time, which is great for podcasts. And and I, I've listened to a whole bunch of your episodes, and I learned something from all your guests. And that's that's kind of my journey. I'm a teacher and a learner. Um, and uh, and I, you know, I'm not really a kinesiologist as a profession, uh, but I turned to. Um, to ketogenic diets is my research area. It's it's a bit of an aha moment, if you don't mind, uh, McKay. I'll, I'll tell your listeners a little bit about that. Is that yeah, right? Please do. Okay, so so I was doing this. Uh, re- I'm you know I as a teacher I believe in critical reasoning and healthy skepticism and and uh, I believe in in making evidence based decisions. So so I, a, a radio show would be the equivalent to NPR in the United States. Um, here uh, in Canada, and and um, and we we would talk about current events issues and and try and and apply critical reasoning to see what the you know what what the real issues were, uh, and so we had a show that was addressing the best way to lose weight and maintain a healthy weight, whether that was about the food you eat or whether it was exercise, and because I was a kinesiology prof, I took the exercise uh, side of the argument. And that was what I believe. This is this is ten more than ten years ago. I I believed in the conventional wisdom, which is you know a, a high carb, low fat diet was the best way to lose and manage weight. And you know if people were overweight, it was because they're eating too much or exercising too little. And 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 um, we had a guest on, um, uh, Dr. Richard Mathias, who is a um, professor. He's a physician, also a professor of public health at the University of British Columbia here in Vancouver. And uh, he'd been studying indigenous diets, and he had, um, which are essentially ketogenic diets, as I'm, I'm sure you know, especially as if you go further north where, you know, there aren't a lot of, there's not a lot of paninis and pizzas up there. Uh, so, Or vegetable um, gardens. Well, they do, far, you know, they get some north, berries and they, things, yeah, yeah that, but in the, it's seasonal, right? And they try and yeah. dry them, and, but, but, you know, their diets are 70, 90 percent saturated fats, and they're totally healthy on that diet. They don't really get chronic disease or obesity. So anyway, we, we were discussing you know, on air, what 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 caused a, a diet? And he said, "Well, Dave, what do you what do you think causes obesity?" And I, this is you have to remember, this is ten or fifteen years ago, uh, a little more than ten years ago. And I, I said, "Well, you know, the party line." I said, "It's uh, it's a very complex, multifactorial problem that includes genetic factors and metabolic factors and psychosocial factors." And I kind of went on, and and uh, and Dr. Mathias was very patient with me, waited till I stopped, and he said, "Dave." It's not that at all. It's much simpler. He said it's a physiological response to excess carbohydrate in the diet. And it was, uh, McKay, I got to say, it was it was such an aha moment for me that we actually we called on radio called Dead Air. I just went silent for a while. And then my co-host was kind of looking at me, so like, say something, Dave. Because, you know, there's there's this premise in philosophy called Occam's Razor, which is, you know, to paraphrase, is you you, you shouldn't consider a more complex solution to a problem until you've already addressed the simpler solution and and you also have to understand that i've been teaching this stuff for 35 years and i just thought you know the governments are telling us this and the healthcare system is telling us this stuff and the textbooks all say you know high carb low fat and 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 i just said but this what he just said made such perfect sense to me it can't be right like it's too simple so that was my aha moment. After that show, I spent about two years just investigating the research on nutritional science. And I looked for, you know, that causal relationship, not a correlational uh, effect, but a causal relationship between especially saturated fats and cardiovascular disease that, you know, Ansel Keys and his, uh, his friends put forward. And I couldn't find it. I couldn't find any robust evidence to support the notion that the standard Western diet 
is actually a healthy diet. Um, not to say that some people can't be healthy on it, but if you look at the United States where uh, three quarters of Americans now over 18 are overweight or obese and half of Americans are diabetic or pre-diabetic, um, you know, I, I call that standard Western diet the metformin diet now because I think it's, it's, it's heading everybody into the, you know, the sad state of affairs of type 2 diabetes. So, so that was my aha moment. That's where I really turned my attention, my research to that, and then I've been counseling people and then I got involved with some research um, with the BC Cancer Research Center here in Vancouver. It's one of the leading cancer research centers in the world. By the way, British Columbia has the best cancer outcomes anywhere on the planet. Um, and that's largely because there's really, really excellent people that are doing some really top research. Um, and I work with a, a, a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Gerald Crystal, uh, who's an immunologist. We look at the immunohistochemistry of cancer, uh, how the innate immune system and those white blood cells um, interact with cancer cells and how your immune system can help you uh, destroy cancer cells. So that's what we look at. And we've teamed up now um, with uh, Jeff Bullock's team. I'm sure you know Jeff Bullock, um, Dr. Jeff Bullock at the Ohio State University. Uh, and we're involved in a three-year study to look at the therapeutic benefits of ketogenic diets for women with metastatic breast cancer. So that's the that's the start to finish on that one, McKay. So uh, that's that, that's where I am today. And then we've we've just written this book uh, with my wife Dale Drury called BioDiet, and it's a bit of a why to and a how to. Um, the first part of the book uh, really I hope helps people understand why ketogenic diets work, why the standard Western diet is making people sick, and and how it can be used as a therapeutic. And 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 um, you know, we're just trying to get that message out as best we can. So I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to talk about it on your show to your listeners. You're very welcome. And do you mind if we just dive right into the deep end? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Because, I mean, one way of understanding cancer is that the body has decided to stop scavenging cancer cells. So the, the cancer tricks for lack of a better word, the body into just leaving it alone. And this has to do with inflammatory response, the Th1 beats Th2 kind of polarization of things, and I'm oversimplifying it on on purpose, and, and on the macrophage side too, right? The M1 versus M2 polarization. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. I'm of the mind, and there's a little research out there with Lyme disease, but particularly with people with multiple infections uh, and parasitic type infections, the body tilts the same way toward the Th2 side of things. And that gives a break for opportunistic viruses to come online, uh, for other infections like Lyme to really kind of get get a hold and and be tough to eradicate. Now, that's why I'm super excited to talk to you about this. Mm. because you're also talking about, okay, let's talk about dietary interventions here and how that can help bring the immune system back into balance so that it starts doing its job again. So yeah, what, I, what, I mean, and maybe a stretch here and maybe beyond what you can, but is, what are your comments about that or thoughts about that? Uh, I think you're spot on. And I, I love a couple of terms you used. I love the tilt and balance. Because really, you know, when you look at um, treating cancer, and, and, and by the way, you know, I, I know your, your show is focused on, on Lyme disease, and, and, and uh, I think that's really important because, you know, there's 300,000 Americans every year that get Lyme disease, sadly, and, and, uh, and it's really hard to diagnose, and it's really hard to treat because everybody's so variable, and, and you know, it's a pretty good proxy for cancer. 
is, you know, about a quarter of us will get cancer at some point in our lives. And, and it's really hard to diagnose exactly what kind it is. And it's really hard to treat and keep it off. And, and, and so they're, they're, they're good proxies for each other. So in terms of now our lab, uh, the, the immunohistochemistry we study is all the innate immune system. So we're looking at, you know, sure macrophages, but also all the interleukins and, and uh, cytokines and chemokines uh, involved in that discussion that, that cells have. And, and really, um, you know, when you're younger, your immune system is very healthy, very responsive. It's very vigilant. Um, I don't think people realize that we get cancer cells all the time. That's not that unusual. And as you said, your immune system goes and scavenges those uh, cells. It, it uh, sort of demarcates them and then and then tries to destroy them and kill them, whether it's with uh, T cells or the innate immune system or natural killer cells. Um, so when your immune system's healthy, you get the cancer cells destroyed before they can they can grow to a size. Once they get bigger than about your thumbnail, that's where they start to become potentially metastatic and spread, and, and that's where we see um, that's where we see the real problems. If it's smaller than your thumbnail, you know, if it's a solid tumor as opposed to like a, a blood cancer, um, then it's it's if you can identify, it's pretty it's much easier to treat. So we want to try and get them early, and um, so. The model that I like to use, if we can, if we can think of, and, and again, this is part of what we try to do with our book is to try and give people some little analogies that help them to understand uh, a very, very complex system in simple ways. So if you picture your back garden and you've got all the flowers and grass and things that you want to have there, um, consider those to be your healthy cells, but then you're also going to have um, weeds and, and the weeds are just going to be there and they're going to grow. So those are the cancer cells. Um, so your immune system is kind of like a weed eater, and it, and it, it weed constantly weeds the the garden of the of the cells you don't want. Now the, the plants need food, and they use the same food we do as glucose, but they get that from sunlight. Uh, and then you also need like a fertilizer, which in our body systems is is insulin and insulin like growth factors. So so if you think of your garden, you've got this sun and you've got this insulin that's helping cancer cells and the healthy cells grow. Well, if you really brighten that sunlight, which is what you do in a high-carbohydrate diet, the standard Western diet, that's going to cause you to increase the insulin as well. So now you've got uh, an optimal amount of fuel and fertilizer that, that, that allows those cancer cells to grow, and it tips that balance in favor of cancer cell growth. What we do with a ketogenic diet, you know, through the, the Vorberg effect, which is the fact that cancer cells don't have the same metabolic flexibility as your other body cells. So they're more dependent on glucose. And they'll concentrate 100 to 200 times other cells because they're so dependent on it. We don't eliminate the glucose. We just lower it to you know a, a lower threshold level. And that lowers the insulin. So now we're, we, we have less food and less fertilizer for those cancer cells. The other cells in your body can quite happily use other fuel sources, namely fats. And that then tips the balance in favor of your immune system. And, and one of the really exciting things we found, that's just very preliminary studies, um, a pilot study really, we looked at um, the immune response. So we actually, we actually take white blood cells uh, out, of, out of the subjects in our, in our studies and we isolate them. And then we challenge them with a viral and a bacterial challenge. And this is very much a proxy for cancer in the same way that Lyme disease is a proxy for the immune response in cancer. And, um, and then we see how well the body responds. And what we're seeing is kind of like, you know, that weed eater that's weeding the garden of the cancer cells. Now it's like a turbocharged weed eater. We're seeing an enhanced immune response. 
um, in in response to that challenge. And I, you know, I hate. I'm sure you'd hate it too. That term immune boosting. You know, when people say there's all these sort of products, there's immune boosting. Like, oh well, you don't want to boost your immune system because that causes you know arthritis and MS and all kinds of things. So, what we want to do is have an optimized immune system where the balance is tipped in favor of the immune system finding and killing cancer cells before they can grow big enough to cause us problems. And that's that's a kind of simple summary of what we're what we're looking at. So having an optimized immune system, obviously with infection, is critical. Now, can I ask what uh, white blood cells you are taking out of the blood? Or is it nonspecific? Are you taking everything out? Are you taking neutrophils, macrophages, all of the above? Yeah, we take them all out, but it's mostly the macrophage is what we're looking at in the in the innate response. But um, uh, and uh, but it's also we're, what we're looking at is actually the cytokines and ketokines. So all the interleukins, colony stimulating factor, you know, uh, IL twelve p seventy, the uh, interferons, the gamma and beta interferon. We're looking at those as well, and we just look at how those uh, change in response to the challenge. Uh, and, um, you know, again, just preliminary studies, but, but you really do get a much more robust response in people that are keto adapted, uh, than the general public. So there seems to be something, something there and we'll be getting the blood samples from, uh, from the women, uh, in our study at the Ohio state university, they're saying that up to us and then we'll be able to see, you know, correlate the actual, um, reversal or regression of the tumors that they have and see, see what the actual conversation is around those cells to do with the, uh, with those uh, cytokines and chemokines. That's incredibly exciting work. It's it's so cool. It's so cool. Uh, it's it's really expensive. Uh, it's about a, <laughs> it's about a million dollars. Well, we, you know, uh, what's what's uh, the expensive part? Just out of curiosity. The expensive part. Well, the studies are, uh, you know, the stuff we're doing are really expensive uh, tests um, okay. themselves. So the equipment, yeah. just the equipment and the actual tests and that sort of thing. Um, and then you have, you know, we we have a pretty big team. There's almost 20 people in the team doing this. Wow. Uh, but the the real expense is we are making all of the food for all of the subjects for the 12 week period that we ask them to keto adapt. So, so this is inpatient. Yeah, no, actually, no. They come in. We we have uh, at the Ohio State University. There's a there's an industrial kitchen there, uh, and we prepare food for both the control side and the experimental side. Uh, they come and pick up the food uh, every three days. Uh, they oh, pick awesome. it up in bowls and things. Yeah, and then they and we weigh everything to a tenth of a gram. So we weigh the bowls and everything when they're wow. when they go out, and they don't wash them. They just send them back to us, and we weigh them again when they we weigh all the spatulas, and we know exactly what they're eating to a tenth of a gram. Uh, so this is the most, it's really exciting because it's the most sophisticated uh, study that I've ever been involved in. And we will for sure get an answer at the end of the three years. We, we're only about halfway through right now. We've recruited about two thirds of the women in the experimental side. And, uh, uh, you know, I can't really comment on the, any conclusive results, but, but the preliminary results are, are, are really, really compelling and very exciting. And, you know, anytime, these are women that are stage four metastatic breast cancer. So anytime you get any improvement, uh, it's pretty exciting for them. And, and, you know, that positive psychosocial aspect is really an important part of the study as well. Oh, that's a whole nother branch to get into. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I I mean, yeah, it's a, a, you know, so, so really what we look at is inflammation and this is this sort of ties back to the, to Lyme disease as well. And I like what you said before is, you know, when you're, when you're, when your immune system is busy with one thing, uh, it gets distracted and it gives an opportunity for other things. In fact, we call them opportunistic infections or opportunistic diseases because they they can't really take hold until your your immune system is is distracted. Uh, 
uh, with something else. And so Lyme disease, you know, it provides that uh, constant recurring distraction for immune system that then makes you susceptible uh, to, to other conditions. Um, not to mention the fact that, you, you, you know, many people experience this chronic systemic inflammation as a result. And, and, and um, you know, in, in, in bio diet, we talk about, uh, you know, I have this model for health, which, which has, you know, three points on, on a triangle, one of which is inflammation, uh, another which is insulin resistance, and, and the third corner is, is obesity. And those three things all synergistically make each other worse. So once you get one of those things going, uh, there's a greater propensity for the other things to happen as well. And, and, uh, and you know, when you pour carbohydrate onto that model, uh, then that leads to insulin resistance, obesity, and inflammation. So it just makes everything worse. The good news is, McKay, that if you pull that carbohydrate out of that, uh, that model, those things all resolve, and they resolve quite quickly. Um, you know, we see insulin resistance improving by 75% within four weeks. So, so we really do have this non-drug nutrition-based uh, way of addressing chronic disease um, that, that uh, I just think people need to hear about this. And, and, you know, it won't work for everybody. Ketogenic diets are not for everybody. But, you know, when you consider the rates of obesity and diabetes, I think about seven out of eight people could benefit by at least giving it a go. And um, what I emphasize in, in, in bio diet is that you should do this with your physician. You know, you should get some benchmark uh, data, uh, do this with your physician, measure it beginning and end, see if it's working for you. And, and I think for roughly about seven or eight people, it'll, it'll provide some improvement. Um, the, specifically, I, I looked into um, data, and you know way more about this than I would, but I, you know, there's not a lot in the literature specifically about ketogenic diets for um, for Lyme disease, um, but there is a lot of evidence that's an effective. It's essentially an anti-inflammatory diet. So, so one would suspect that it would it would provide some benefit for sure. That's that's where I'm coming from. I've spoken with quite a few people with Lyme disease, and uh, a turning point for them was the removal of sugars from their diet. And you can only suspect that it's one less inflammatory substance uh, pathway that's being activated. Just recently, within the past uh, week, at a Virginia Tech, a researcher has isolated a proteoglycan that is released during the Borrelia's reproductive phases. And this uh, protein. Uh, this sugar protein is incredibly inflammatory, and he thinks he's found the cause of, particularly with the joint inflammation that people uh, experience with Lyme disease. But I would imagine if the the bug is reproducing anywhere, and this protein is that inflammatory, that it's going to cause inflammation anywhere. So if you have your body has only so much capacity to quell inflammation, and in, in a normal state, you know, it's bad enough with all the carb carbohydrates you got. And what you're showing is that, you know, it's leading to all these metabolic issues, uh, overload of insulin and obesity and cardiovascular type diseases. And maybe even you talk about the, the psychosocial part of things and people feeling grumpy and angry and things like that with, with those low level inflammation. But then you add onto it another load, like an infection, and you have to do everything you can in your power. And one of the reasons I, I also wanted to bring you on the show is the diet is sometimes the last thing people want to look at, especially when it comes to 
comfort, quote unquote, comfort foods, because people are feeling pretty lousy to begin with. And, you know, they've starting to overturn lots of options, you know, the antibiotic route or the herbal route, and maybe they're trying various other things, saunas or baths or dry brushing and all these other kind of things. And the, finally, they get around to looking, well, maybe I should take out the, the sugar. And the, the way many Lyme patients talk about it is that the bacteria love the sugar. And I don't know if that's 100% accurate, but what we do know is that sugar is inflammatory in the diet. So, Make the case for starting with the diet instead of it the last thing that you try in intervening. Yeah, I mean, that's you put that so well. It, it should be it should be the first line of treatment, really. And and when you consider that, um, you know, we don't really have a, a healthcare system, as I'm sure you know, McKay. We have we have a disease management system. So um, I'll come. I'll come back to that. But I, let's use. You know, I I'm a design thinker, um, and that's how I that's how I try and solve problems. And one of the things you do in design thinking is is uh, use the five whys. You know, you just keep asking why till you get at the root problem. So if we look at something like diabetes, uh, so diabetes, you know, is defined clinically by excessive glucose in the blood, high blood sugar. So your physician goes, okay, the blood sugar is high. I'll give you this medication, whether it's, you know, metformin or insulin or an SGLT2 inhibitor, whatever, but it reduces your blood sugar. Okay. They consider that a treatment, but there are no drugs that actually reverse diabetes. All they do is slow the progress of the disease. And as we know, that disease doesn't, doesn't end well. It shortens your life and, and it's unpleasant for sure in those last years. So, so what you should really do is ask your physician, you know, well, why is my blood sugar high? And they will probably say, well, it's because you become insulin resistant if it's type 2. And then you say, well, why am I insulin resistant? Well, that's because you've been secreting too much insulin for too long and your cells are kind of becoming deaf to that insulin signal. So uh, why are my cells, why has my insulin been so high? Well, your insulin is high because insulin is released when you uh, eat carbohydrate and you've been eating a high carbohydrate diet for all this time. So your insulin levels day after day after day have been very high. Uh, and so then you go, well, why don't I just reduce the carbohydrate and let's see if that works first rather than address the symptom at the end of the, of that thought process, let's go to the root cause. And I actually think, you know, you had a, a show I was listening to, um, you're talking about mitochondria really, really fascinating because I think what I'm seeing, because ketogenic diets are very good at treating these chronic metabolic diseases, but also neurological diseases like uh, epilepsy, Parkinson's, maybe even autism. And where do those things two tie together when you get into the cellular? It's the mitochondria. So I think, though, you know, for sure, sugar is inflammatory, and you need to get that out of your diet, whether you're healthy or not. Uh, it's just, you know, we know what it does in the liver. You know, here's the scary thing. Half, half of the um, calories in a standard American diet are from highly processed foods. Half of that for most American adults is sugar. Half of sugar is fructose, and fructose is a known hepatotoxin with all kinds of negative consequences, including insulin resistance, but also increase in tumor necrosis factor alpha, which is very inflammatory. So we know sugar is inflammatory. So if you have an inflammatory disease like Lyme disease, yeah, stop eating sugar. That's the first thing you should do before you consider anything else and see if that improves. So let's pause there for a second too. Yeah. Fruct, you know, assuming, oh, high fructose 
corn syrup, right? And yeah. so, okay, we're going to avoid that. But fructose is the one of the main sugars in some of those high sugar fruits as well. Oh, oh yeah, I'm eating healthy, so I'm eating two or three bananas a day, or a banana smoothie, or you know, then piling on some pineapple and some other uh, high sugar yeah, fruits and, there. And, and the and the processed food industry loves to talk about added sugars, post to natural sugar. You know, it's all when it, fructose is fructose when it gets in your body, and your body has to deal with it. And it, and when it deals with it, it creates a lot of problems. So, yeah, you 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 um, it's it, there are a lot of you know I think there's about sixty different names for sugar in products so that they you know, <laughs> they can kind of hide that. Uh, we put that on our website. We've got a lot of resources on our on our website. It's biodiet.org if you're interested. You can have a little preview of the book there too. But we've got that, the 60 different names for uh, for, for sugar in, in processed foods so they can hide it. We um, need a so, song. That's awesome. I need a little yeah. kitty. <laughs> yeah, but it, it just kills me that Americans, you know, they're, they, uh, and you say it's it's it, food is so emotional. It's cultural. Yes. Uh, it's psychological. And most, if you look at the, you know, we talk, we call each other sweetie if we like them. And there's mm-hmm. this, all this culture about sweet being good. Uh, and of course it tastes good. But if you look at your, the fruit you were talking about, those aren't real fruits. Those are so highly designed to be sweet. And, and I have a little analogy there where I talk about, see, I'm a biologist in my background. So I ask people, can, okay, so what is a fruit? And if you think about it, a fruit is something that a plant puts around the seeds because plants can't run, so they can't they can't, they can't dis- they can't disperse their seeds. So they need a vehicle. So you know you have those little uh, samaras they're called. You know, on the maple trees, you guys get up there those little yeah. uh, those little uh, helicopter things. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a dispersal system. But uh, one of the main dispersal systems for plants is they have the flower. The flower gets fertilized. It produces the you know the ovary where the where the seeds are, and then you surround that in this thing that animals will eat. So the animals will pick up the fruit. It goes through the, their digestive system. By the time they, you know, poop it out, they're miles away, and that's their dispersal system. So the fruit is not made to make people healthy. It's made to use animals, and the plant could care less if the animal lives or dies at the end of the day, as long as it disperses the seeds. So we have this tendency to think that everything in nature is good for us and fruits are from nature so they should be good for us but in fact nature is mostly trying to kill us <laughs> if you think about it and and uh, if we can eat some of that plant stuff and survive on it that's a good thing but you know i really believe you are what you eat and 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 so uh you know you need to have a diet that includes i think you know a wide range of things but but for sure you know animal based uh, proteins and animal based products are 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 what we are uh, and and when we eat those things, as you you probably talked to some people, uh, they're doing carnivore diets. You know, people a lot of these disease conditions res, re, uh, resolve. Uh, and I'm of course I'm putting aside the whole notion of the animal welfare, you know, and environmental sustainability. I personally think those are distractions. I'm here to talk about health and what a healthy diet is, and those those discussions are for another day. Now you mentioned getting started with your program or any ketogenic program start with your doctor and you mentioned some tests. So if you'll, what markers, what tests do you think a person should have done getting into to see if ketogenic approach is going to work for them? A, and then how do you recommend getting started? You know, do you just jump in with both feet? Do you have an induction phase? How do you like to do it? Uh, Yeah. Thanks. Uh, Well, 
we actually have five steps in, in, in the program we have here. This is the second half of the book. The first half explains why, you know, the ketogenic diets will work for you if they're appropriate. The second half is how to do it. And the five steps, the first one is called bioassessment. And that's where you do these measurements. So a lot of them are, are morphological measurements or things like, you know, weight and height and waist size. Um, actually, at Cedar sinai there's two people that have I, I referred to it in the book because it just came out as we were writing it, uh, something called relative fat mass as opposed to BMI. BMI is a pretty lousy measurement, um, but relative fat mass, it turns out, they examined all these different biomarkers to associate which ones were better predictors, and it turns out it's just height to waist size. Yeah. So, you know, and they have a little forms. Less than, less than two, right? Your waist size should be less than twice your height. Is that it? Yeah, roughly, and it's a little bit different for men and for women, but yeah. it's a very simple equation that, that's that's in the book. Um, so there's things you can do yourself. Um, also, you know, I like people to journal so that they think about, you know, where they are psychologically, what's their mood like, you know, are they having any cravings, that sort of thing. So start with a journal. And then with your physician, you'd want to look at um, all of your basic body functions. They, they measure that by doing, you know, a urine test and a blood lipid test. They call a lipid panel. Uh, it's probably good to get your um, your high sensitivity CRP. That's the C-reactive protein, which is a measure of inflammation, uh, especially for people with Lyme disease. It will give you a, a sense of how you know how chronically inflamed you are. Um, and then you can look at you know vitamin D. Uh, um, there's all kinds of other things. You, they will measure your ketones typically in, in both the blood and urine test. Uh, but that gives you a benchmark. Uh, and then, you know, over the 12 weeks, um, you, you can compare that. The other thing you can consider doing uh, to get a really accurate measure of your fat uh, and, and, and where your fat is, is something called a DEXA test. Um, these are these, they, they use them for bone density typically, but they also measure your, your fat content and, uh, and they show where it's deposited in the body. So, and they cost, I think, about 100 bucks roughly um, to do. And you could probably get it done privately or, or with uh, under your health insurer, depending on what your state of health is. So, so getting all those measurements done before and after the 12 week intervention, we like to say 12 weeks because, um, you know, that you have to develop these new lifestyle habits. This diet, even though the book says bio diet, it's not a short term calorie restricted diet. Those don't work. This is a lifestyle change. So you need to commit to it psychologically and and personally for for you know one season or 12 weeks. I guarantee you, uh, every single person that I've counseled on ketogenic diets, every single one of them has said they feel great. Not everybody's lost weight, you know. But everybody says they feel great. So that's one of the good things about sustainability. But you got to hang in there. So make you know, you don't want to start a keto diet right before a wedding or something like that, where you're going to be tempted to uh, you know have a bunch of cake. Um, so that and the other thing we do that's a that's a little bit unique about this diet because is, is we have a stage called bio preparation, and that's where you prepare your environment. So you go through your fridge and your cupboards and you get rid of the stuff that's going to tempt you. Uh, and then you you buy the foods that you need. But we, in terms of the diet, what we do is we get you to cut out sugar um, for a week or so, a week or two, it's up to you. We get you to cut out alcohol for that week or two, just temporarily. I like to say that because people get a little edgy when you say <laughs> cut out alcohol, some people do. Um, and, and then we introduce, we get people to super hydrate, so make sure they're well hydrated all day long, and then also introduce them to um, to to ex, uh, to large amounts of ketones, and I, I prefer to use uh, MCT oil, medium chain triglyceride oil, 
Uh, lots of good products out there, but make sure it's a C8, which is the eight carbon variety, because that's the one that converts completely to ketones in the liver. So that what that does is it allows people to ease into this and address some of the early sugar cravings and so on. Uh, before they go to the very hard carbohydrate restriction, where you cut out all the starches as well, in uh, in the third step, which we call bioadaptation, that's where you literally adapt to to fat burning as opposed to sugar burning, and that's where you'll see most of the symptoms that people call the keto flu, things like dizziness, lightheadedness, and and uh, some digestive issues, maybe some sleep disruption, uh, but really important during that third phase that you have physician oversight because. If you're uh, taking any medications, there might be a need for a concomitant uh, reduction of those medications uh, for blood pressure, blood sugar, uh, as you bioadapt. Um, and then, and then you know, you as I say, the, the next stage we call biorejuvenation, which takes you through the rest of the 12 weeks. And I call it rejuvenation because though your chronological change uh, age can't change, your biological age can. And when you change these biomarkers that we uh, measure, you're actually going back to a more youthful state. So if somebody was to look at you without knowing how old you are, they would predict you to be about 10 years younger, roughly. And I'm not kidding. It's about 10 years you take off your life in, in, in 10 weeks uh, in terms of your, your not, not <laughs> I shouldn't say take off your life, off your age. I, so, I know you meant, yes. <laughs> take 10 years off your age uh, biologically in, in that 12 weeks. And, and man, that feels pretty good. The aches and pains go away. Uh, for most people, they lose uh, men 10, uh, 20 to 25 pounds. Typically, women 10 to 15 pounds. Uh, your insulin resistance uh, goes way down. Your insulin sensitivity goes up. Um, and so those three aspects of, of the what I call the axis of illness, they all they all resolve themselves. And then the very last step, step five, is just what are you going to do next? And, and I'm hoping that you adopt a low-carb diet. Uh, you can experiment with, with adding carbs to your diet and see how you're feeling uh, or stay keto. What I hope people don't do is just do this for 12 weeks, you know, to get into their bathing suit for the summer and then go back to their bad habits and high-carb diet. I, I really hope people don't do that because – uh, you know, that, that standard Western diet, I like to call it the metformin diet, because I think that's where, that's where folks are headed if they're not careful. How do you feel about cheat days? Uh, I don't like them. Why? Uh, uh I don't like them psychologically. I think, uh, you know, uh, in short, it's a slippery slope. Um, and, and, uh, people are really, you know, one of the problems with nutritional studies that aren't well controlled, like the one we have going at, at the Ohio State University is uh, people are really bad at reporting what they eat. They really underreport what they. Um, I don't think most people know that if you, you know, if your physician asks you how many drinks you have a day, they take that number and either double it or triple it because they know you're not lying, but you're going to underreport, right? So uh, that's that's one of the problems. The other one is, you know, how do you define cheating? Um, is cheating having a banana one day before you're going out to play hockey? Yeah, that's you know probably not such a bad thing, but is cheating? You know, having pizza once a week or those those five and two diets. I I, I yeah, think that, something like I, that. Yeah. Okay. So, so I think they're actually potentially dangerous, and here's why. Uh, I I think intermittent fasting works on a daily basis. Uh, I think the occasional day long fast is probably a good thing to trigger autophagy and so on. But these five and two diets, there's there's a couple things. Where in those studies have you seen any measures of cortisol? Uh, because that's a real shock to your system to just not eat for a couple of days, and and that will raise your cortisol levels, and that counteracts all of the benefits of, a, of, of what we're trying to do with the ketogenic diet. Uh, and the other thing is, you know, we these cheat days, you might think, oh, I'll just get right back into ketosis a day or two later. You can, you know, one potato can knock you out of ketosis for three days or a week. 
So, so you're, all that hard work you're doing all, to get into a state of nutritional ketosis, that's what we call it, um, you're, you're just risking all that. And, 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 and when you do reintroduce uh, a high level of glucose on these cheat days, now your body's it's just not adapted to that. So, so it's a shock to the system. Um, I have a colleague, John Little, and, and his, at UBC, uh, University of British Columbia, Okanagan, uh, one of his graduate students, Cody Jur, I'm on his committee, and he's he's looking at just that cheat days, and and uh, and all the news there is is not good news. You sh- if you're keto adapted, you should just stay keto adapted as best you can. Now, if you slip, you know, I'm 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 having my birthday next week. I'm going to go out and have a Guinness. Uh, that's my birthday treat. That's about the amount I slip. I have like one beer uh, once a uh, I have one beer once a year. <laughs> <laughs> something like that, uh, and um, you know, my everybody's got their kryptonite. My kryptonite is is, is wine. Um, the good thing about working in the labs we do is we can experiment with things and test our blood and see what's happening. And and uh, uh, actually, it turns out Guinness, if if you've had some exercise, it doesn't really knock you out of ketosis. You know, one Guinness won't do that. Uh, scotch is pretty good. Uh, dry wines are pretty good, but you know, you have to be very careful because there's a slippery slope there as well. And of course, if you're consuming alcohol. That impairs your judgment, makes you more likely to have that extra drink you shouldn't have. So let's, you mentioned ketosis there and measuring for it and going in and out of it. And I mean, obviously we're talking about a ketogenic diet here, but I think there is still quite a bit of confusion about what exactly is ketogenic, right? Yes, there is. As opposed, you know, low carb and low carb isn't necessarily ketogenic or high fat isn't even necessarily ketogenic. So what, what specifically is ketogenic and do you have to be ketogenic to get the benefits? Uh, I, I think there's benefits to low carb as well. So, so essentially, you know, again, these are arbitrary definitions, but, but if you're getting less than 30% of your, uh, calories, you know, macronutrient calories from, uh, from carbohydrates that's considered to be low carb and, and that, sort of 25, 30% range. That's sort of a paleo diet, um, which, you know, allows more fruit and, and some high sugar uh, foods. Uh, if you want to enter a state of ketosis, you, you really do need to drop your, your, your carbohydrate intake because your body will, it's just, it's kind of lazy in that way. It'll selectively burn the sugars first. And then that stops the, uh, the fat burning, which, which is what creates the ketones. So, so ketogenic literally means making ketones. And the ketones, uh, I know you've discussed on your show before, you know, you get, you, you produce acetoacetate and that gets mostly converted to uh, beta hydroxybutyrate, especially as you keto adapt. And then you produce a little bit of acetone and there's these different ways of measuring it. But what we do in the lab is measure it in the blood, which is the best way to measure it. And, and um, so, so in order to maintain that, you do have to maintain a very uh, low carbohydrate intake. Uh, now, what does that mean? Um, for most people, that's probably 5% of their calories or less. So once they're keto adapted, you know, depending on your size and your, how much you're exercising 80 to hundred grams a day, you'll probably still be in mild, what we call nutritional ketosis. Uh, that term was coined by the way, by Dr. Stephen Finney, nutritional ketosis, as well as the term, uh, well-formulated ketogenic diet. So I'm, I, I shout out to him for those two terms. Uh, and, and typically, you want your blood ketones to be about 0.5 uh, for, for us when we're doing clinical studies, between about 0.5 and, and roughly 3. Uh, you can go higher, but you know once you get too high, then you know, obviously that's a disease state of ketoacidosis. And, and, and there's a problem there, McKay, because you know even though physicians don't get much nutritional training, what they do get is 
this notion that, you know, when uh, diabetics are about to go into diabetic coma, they're in a state of ketoacidosis and you can actually smell the acetone on someone's breath is a very dangerous, potentially fatal state. So they just hear keto and they think potentially fatal diabetic state. Uh, they don't yet really fully grasp the fact that the state of nutritional ketosis is beneficial because that main ketone, the beta-hydroxybutyrate, is, is kind of a super molecule. It's a signaling molecule. It works as a hormone. It's burned selectively by the brain who loves it. Less inflammation, less oxidative stress. The heart likes it. In our, uh, we use uh, fluorodeoxyglucose to image uh, our patients. And one of the things we see consistently is after the person's keto adapted is, there, is their heart is no longer burning sugar. It's preferring the ketones, uh, which is great because that sugar in the heart, it, the sugar is what causes inflammation uh, in the blood vessels. That's what causes cardiovascular disease, not saturated fat or cholesterol in the diet. It's from inflammation. And, uh, and we're seeing the heart selectively saying, no, I don't want to burn sugar. I'll happily burn ketones if they're available because it's, it's kind of like, you know, a car going from gas power to electric power. It's just, it's a lot cleaner burning, burning fuel. So, and, you know, I should mention one of the other things we talked about, just to come back to something a little bit earlier. One of the other things that's really highly inflammatory in the blood vessels are uh, vegetable oils. Um, and, uh, you know, it's like canola oil, linseed oil, uh, cottonseed oil, these cheap uh, vegetables are highly inflammatory, a lot of um, omega-6. And, and so, you know, for people who have Lyme disease, you really want to avoid those kind of vegetable oils and just stick with the, you know, olive oil and macadamia oil, avocado oil, grass-fed butter is fantastic. Uh, I made a mistake one day of thinking it was a piece of cheese in the fridge and I ate like a half a stick of grass-fed butter and it was so good. It tastes great, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, you know, people worry about uh, if I'm going to be giving up bread or giving up pasta, I'm, I'm part Italian, so, you know, giving up pasta is kind of hard. But, but man, once you start eating that grass-fed butter, you, you, that's where all the flavor is, man. And it's, uh, it's like heaven. It's funny. Right now, we, we're on a farm. I grew up in Washington, D.C., in the city, in a row house. And now I'm on 30 acres in the middle of nowhere. And my father-in-law keeps a handful of heritage breed cows. And we've just had two calves. And he's milking one of the mothers. The other one is too ornery, so she kicked too much, so she's leaving that one alone. But I've got milk sitting out, and I'm getting ready to separate the fat and to make butter tonight. So if I, I'm coming over, I'm, coming over. <laughs> I'm getting on a plane right now. I'm over. You know, and the th the thing. So th this is just a total aside, but the when you make your own butter out of animals that are eating nothing but grass all year round and in, during the winter time they're eating hay that we just put up so it's just dried out grass the the beta carotene which is a marker for the other fat soluble nutrients in there is so rich it's the butter isn't yellow it's orange it's the most astonishing thing in the world it's not that pale stuff that you see you know in this in the supermarket that's mass produced it's really it's a totally different animal, and it feels different when you eat it. I don't know how to describe it, but you you did a pretty good job. Well, I think you did a pretty good job. So my mouth is watering, watering right now. <laughs> Thinking about that. The other thing about grass-fed butter that I'm not sure people know is it's it's very, very high in omega-3 fatty acid. That's the one you want. Uh, you know, there's a fellow named Bob Gibson at University of Adelaide has um, determined that, you know, the optimal ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 should be about should be about, uh, or the other way around, omega-6 to omega-3, should be about 2 to 1. Um, for most North Americans, it's like 20 to 1 20, or 30 yeah, to 1. Because of all these damn vegetable oils they're putting in, vegetables are highly inflammatory. They may even be 
somewhat carcinogenic. I, you know, a little bit of a caveat there. We don't know yet, but uh, but all that vegetable we put in all that processed food is not doing us any good. But although there are good vegetables, obviously the monounsaturated ones we talked about. It's the it's the concentration. It's like there's nothing natural about. I mean, how much how much corn would you have to consume to get a tablespoon of corn oil? I it it just it scares me. You have to eat a whole field or something like that. You know, yeah, and, and, and then we know what happens to the uh, the Gulf of Mexico when you fertilize those fields well, too. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> that's that's a different show, <laughs> the yes, ecological yeah. disaster show. Yeah. yeah, right. And and the omega threes are part of we were talking about it to kind of bring it back to to the beginning here and begin to wrap up. Is that the omega threes are part of create prostaglandins, which are part of the immune system resolvins, which calm the immune system down after it's been activated. So if you don't have the enough omega-3s or they're counterbalanced by the, the omega-6s, there are too many of the omega-6s, which actually is part of the inflammatory side, your immune system can get revved up and never call back down again. And that's just asking for an autoimmune type response. And I know so many people with Lyme disease out there have been diagnosed with an autoimmune disease disease, well, non-specifically, like, well, it's not lupus, it's not rheumatoid arthritis, you don't have that, those antibodies, but boy, you know, your blood looks an awful lot like it's got an autoimmune disease going on there. And that's one of the common misdiagnoses. And our diets, back to diets, set us up for that. You know, so we've got the carbohydrates, we've got all these uh, vegetable oils. There's a great book out there, you've probably read it, The Marianic, The Oiling of America, and uh, it it really is one of those those critical things. It's cheap, you know. It's easy. You can't find a, a, a salad dressing out there that isn't made with soybean oil. You know, even if they say it's made with olive oil, it's got like a splash of olive oil in it, and the rest is soybean oil. So we're just we're just surrounded by these industrial foods, and the best the best you can do is is cook your own. Yeah, you grow your own and cook your own, uh, you know, buy right from the farm, farm to fork, that that all works. Um, on the omegas, you know, uh, one of the things, a uh, little shout out to my colleague, Jerry Crystal, he studies uh, fish oil. He's um, very, very big on fish oil being preventative for cancer, and they've got some really good, now these are all studies on mice, you know, we've, we've cured cancer in mice thousands of times, but, but uh, and mice actually have two genes for insulin, they're a little bit different in the way they process it. But for sure, low-carb diets with lots of uh, fish oil are preventative. Uh, I think that data is pretty conclusive. So there's another good source. You know, we had, the, I was at a lecture at a local college here. It's about five years ago. And I don't remember the researcher's name, unfortunately. It's shame <laughs> on me. But basically his intervention, and they were doing it in a small town somewhere nearby, was they eliminated soybean oil and started adding in anchovies into the diet. <laughs> Fantastic. You know, and so it exactly, and the point was to balance the omega-3 and omega-6, right? So take out the most inflammatory vegetable oil, which is the soybean oil, and then replace some of the omega-3s with, with these anchovies. And the response was all over the place because some people say, oh my goodness, I, I remember anchovies when I was a you know little kid and it was such a treat and I missed them and I haven't even thought about them in 20 years. And then there are other people would, I've 
fit in that category would be like okay anchovies. <laughs> not, well, they got, they, not my they got a lot of tea. Bad, yeah, they got a lot of bad press on a lot of television where they, you know, people would always say pizza without anchovies, right? But uh, <laughs> but those are those little anchovies that are kind of you know we use them in in Nishwa's salad. Uh, but uh, you know, anchovies are actually quite a you know they're quite a bit bigger fish, almost size of a mackerel, the main ones. And it's one of the I think it's one of the biggest uh, catches globally in terms of the tonnage. Um, it's a big part of the food supply of a lot of people. That's something I didn't know. Thank you very much. Eat, yeah, eat, fi- eating fish is good. Eating fish is good, especially those cold water fatty fishes. Uh, we we're, we you know up here on the west coast we get salmon and it's uh, it's loaded with omega three. So when you're eating that salmon, you know that. You know, the skin's good. I like That's why I tell people, you know, on a keto diet, eat the skin on the chicken and eat the fat on the steak. Hopefully it's organic. But the skin on, on fish is good. But underneath that skin, you know, that kind of grayish uh, layer there? Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's that's the slow twitch muscle. That's the stuff that's just chock full of omega-3 fatty acids. And, and you know, it's probably about, the, even though the flavor is kind of meh, you know, that is like the best thing you can eat is that grayish kind of stuff under the skin on a piece of salmon. It's just loaded with omega-3s. Okay, I'll make sure I don't leave that on the plate next time. Yeah, with the salmon. Or, or if you're eating with me, you can just pass it over. I'll eat it. <laughs> no, it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dave, you've been incredibly generous with your time and your knowledge. Thank you for writing an incredible book. Uh, there's, there's never enough information like this out there. So thank you for joining in the fray and, and bringing kind of a researcher's mind and a thinking man's mind to this problem. And it's, it's huge. And it, it, you know, we think about it, the, the big gorilla in the room, public health wise is definitely obesity and the heart disease, but it does trickle over into the Lyme world in terms of inflammation. Cause really you can, uh, obesity is an inflammatory disease. There's no doubt about that. It raises yeah. all the inflammatory <laughs> markers. So it's, you know, you come at it at a slightly different angle from the infectious side of things, but really they all meet together uh, with the diet and how important that is. So thank you for sharing that with us. And I'd like to leave you with uh, the final word, including how people can get hold of you. We'll obviously have this in the show notes, but for people who uh, have good memories, how yeah. can they get hold of you? Well, that's one of the reasons I, I, I called the book BioDiet is so that people could remember it. So our, our website is biodiet.org. Uh, and, uh, you know, my email is there. It's just david at biodiet.org. My wife and co-author, Dale Drury, is just dale at biodiet.org. Uh, our uh, hashtag for social media is hashtag biodietbook. Uh, and you can also go on Facebook and just look up biodiet. Uh, you'll find us there as well. And, and on our website on biodiet.org, uh, you can preview the book. We have all the all the resources in there because I, I wanted to keep the book as, as, as small and inexpensive as possible. It's a paperback. This is self-published, by the way. Um, so we left all the references. They're all online. Uh, all the diagrams and tables are all online, uh, as well as um, uh, some samples of the book you can have a read of. And you can, you can you know, order it at your favorite online bookstore. It's available in bookstores throughout uh, North America right now. It's a bestseller in Canada right now. Uh, it's only been out a month. So, awesome. uh, yeah, it's doing well here. So, um, yeah, please, if you do have a read and if you have any comments or questions, you can post them on the BioDiet Facebook site or go ahead and send us an email. We'd be happy to answer you. And listen, McKay, what you're doing right now is so important um, just because I know you're doing this as a labor of love. You know, you don't get paid for this. Uh, you're getting information out that's really solid scientific information to the general public. And that is such a service and so needed. So I just really want to thank you for what you're doing. 
you're very welcome. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. It's it is. We don't think about that very much. We just kind of keep our head down and keep plowing forward. But uh, thanks, I appreciate it very much. You're you're welcome. It's always good to learn more about the ketogenic diet. And this interview reminds me of something that you say every now and then is that eating is inherently inflammatory. Sounds crazy, right? Yeah, but at the same time, it makes sense. You know, we're, our energy comes from a chemical process. It's like we're basically a combustion engine. So, well, that's. You're you're conflating two things. You're squishing two things together there. So the energy comes from getting the various fuel sources inside the cells and the mitochondria, right? And the body can use proteins to do that, glucose and fats. And fats are the cleanest burning fuel of the three. And that's why the ketogenic diet is so anti-inflammatory. Now, the process of eating is different. There's this statistic that's thrown around. 80% of your immune system is in your digestion, right? Is in your gut. But what do they mean by that? Well, that means that the lymph, most of your lymph system surrounds your intestines. And the lymph is the main thoroughfare for a lot of the immune cells. So that's what they mean by that. So when the body encounters your food, it has to decide whether it's friend or foe. And depends if you've got sensitivities to food, right? A little actual allergy to something like celiac or just a sensitivity like a gluten sensitivity then your body's going to respond at various levels of inflammation. So it's going to send out the macrophages and some of the T helper cells, maybe neutrophils a little bit too, to help the body figure out and respond to what it perceives there. And remember, you're also full of bacteria and mold and stuff like that. So they're it's got to, and they're too. doing their thing and they've got to stay on their side of the fence. So that's, you know, that's a give and take there that's happening all the time. So that's why, eating is inflammatory because that process generates some inflammation. Now, normally what happens is the body, there's a little bit of inflammation, the body just quiets it down immediately. But sometimes we produce too much histamine or maybe there is an immune reaction, so it's more like a, a uh, an allergy. And like me with scallops. Exactly. Well, that's yeah, <laughs> that's almost immediate, isn't it? Yeah. And so then, so then what happens is you get distension, you get bloating, you can have constipation, you have diarrhea. But sometimes the inflammation caused in the gut, there's no symptoms in the gut, and they're more diffuse throughout the body. So there are allergies, rhinitis, that they can be in your nose and your sinuses. You can have mood alterations because of histamine being released in the brain. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. The bottom line here is in preparation for healing and killing off the bugs, you have to clean up your diet. It's the one of the first things you need to get your sleep right and you need to get your diet right. If you haven't done those two things, pause what you're doing, get those under control. And today we're particularly talking about the diet. So again, that's the beginning of phase two. The reboot phase really is kind of get your head wrapped around with the whole Lyme thing and what you need to do. Phase two is to get into action, right? To resolve whatever infections you have hanging around. And to begin to do that, you need to clean up your diet. All right. If you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, 
Just go ahead and hit the subscribe button, and that way you won't miss an episode. And if you really like what we're doing, leave us a review on your podcast app. It helps us reach more people like you. And last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja Fact of the Day. Did you know when ninjas burn calories, they use... A flamethrower. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.